0: You know, the thing about linguistics that's so cool is it's the knowledge that you have that you didn't know, you know, and this is definitely one of those like, I didn't know, I knew that languages want their vowels to match in any particular way, but apparently it's, you know, revealing itself here.
1: everyone. Welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael. And with me, as always, is someone who loves a good sweater as we head into a sweater season, and that is Dr. Kaylee Byers.
2: I do love a good sweater. I'm knitting on one right now, actually. And I had a Issue recently trying to knit a bobble that was not going the way I wanted. Do you know what a bobble is, Michael?
1: Uh, like a bobble head?
2: Kind of, but with yarn. <laughs> it's like a little bit of yarn. Okay. I'll knit into a tiny little ball and then it sits like a little ball in your clothes. Oh. Do you have any sweaters with bobbles?
1: No, I'm actually not a big sweater fan. Although this year I decided. And my mom was very weirded out about it. She was like, where did this come from? I think I'm going to get into turtlenecks this season. Yeah. Because it is kind of like a sweater, but it's also a shirt. And sometimes I get very hot, very easy, especially when I go inside Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I... You know, it's too much. So, but a turtleneck, I think I can do.
2: I'm actually surprised that you don't own like a whole closet full of turtlenecks in various shades of black and white and gray because of your hero (laughs) Carl Sagan. That is surprising to me.
1: I have the I have the one red one that I uh, pull out when I do the Carl Sagan. But uh, now there's going to be lots of colors.
2: Okay. Well, I'm really excited for you, and I'm excited for one day when you get a bobble on your sweater. (laughs) And as we've just learned, bobbles can perhaps be multiple things. And we're going to be learning about how words. Uh, how words come together today. (laughs) Some special kind of words. So today we're joined by Dr. Anne-Michelle Tessier, who's an associate professor of linguistics at UBC, and she's the director of UBC's Child Phonology Lab. Hi, Anne-Michelle. How are you?
0: I am very well. Thank you. It's exciting to be here.
2: We are delighted to have you. And we were actually originally fun fact, going to have you speak at a nerd night right around the time that the pandemic happened. And we were going to talk to you about the topic we're talking to you today about. So we are really excited, you know, a year and a half later. (laughs) It's fine.
0: Yes. It was a fun fact that for for quite some time was not a fun fact at all. And now (laughs) it's a little bit funner again.
2: Yeah, it's a little fun. (laughs) So to start off, can you tell us what linguistics is?
0: Yes, absolutely. So the best way to explain what linguistics is in that like fifteen second sort of way so that if someone asks you what you do for a living and you don't want them to ask me anything more is that you tell them that you study the mathematics of language and people say okay great and they stop <laughs> and that is both true and also misleading so I mean it is very much the math and science of language specifically the part of language that has to do with like how we get our understanding of language into our minds and brains. It's not so much about how to learn a language or why people are necessarily good or bad at speaking languages or different languages, but it's really about how what the structure that underlies languages is is. And so, you know, what is it about being specifically a human and having human capacities for learning languages and understanding languages and speaking them, you know, that gets all that information into our heads. And I especially study how children learn languages. So for me, it's really interesting how that process begins. But it's also, you know, about, yeah, how that stuff is represented in our heads, and then how that affects you know, how we speak, how we talk, how we listen, how we understand, and you know how that breaks down, how we make mistakes, and then also how languages are different and similar, and so on at like a at a structural level.
2: How does the math come in there?
0: So we use a lot of like formal representations for things. So you know um, the the math component of phonetics which is sort of the lowest level of, I would say, language representation that we study has to do with, you know, the actual facts about articulation and acoustics. So you need to know things about, you know, the physics of the sound waves and so on, and what the human ear does with those, um, like the psychoacoustics, but then all the way up to sort of like formal representations of language meaning. So, you know, like, what does the word the mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it turns out that it's actually useful. If you read a dictionary, and you look up what the meaning of the is, uh, there's a lot of words there. It's not always entirely clear what they all add up to. Um, but it turns out one way that linguists do that is to actually try to be really precise about you know, sort of like what it means to be, for example, salient. You know, you say like we try the something, it usually means something about the most salient representation of that thing. You're only talking about one of them. Mm-hmm. So we have these really formal models that come from philosophy and other models that come from like machine learning also, sort of all over the place, try to represent what those meanings look like Mm -hmm. and that makes really the the other sort of mathy part about it or the sciencey part about it is that then we make you know falsifiable predictions about well if you think that that's what the means then it shouldn't be grammatical in this sentence and it should be in that one is that true yes no crap what What do we do about it and then across languages what does the look like
2: so i think what kind of struck me there was um for everybody who who has asked the question like what good is math for (laughs) in my everyday life like actually use it all the time when you're talking
0: (laughs) yes (laughs) indeed absolutely absolutely your brain is doing some fast math at all times true
2: i love it i love it okay so moving moving into something a little bit more specific today we're going to dive into some of the science of swearing so before we get into some of the specifics of your work Is the linguistics of swearing just like a pretty hip feel?
0: Usually uh, like the uh, best evidence of whether a particular topic is, you know, hot is how many publications there are about it Mm -hmm. along that dimension. It's not so clear. There's not actually that much linguistic work on swearing. I would say, um, However, I will also say that this work that we're going to talk about is certainly the only work of mine that has either been tweeted about or retweeted about, mm-hmm. but both of those things definitely happened, which was definitely only presented academically in a fairly niche area. So it's not like people knew about it beforehand. So from that perspective, uh, yes, apparently so. It definitely does come up that people say to me, oh, are you the shit gibbon person? And I think, yes, yes <laughs> that is me. So... Like this is, this is my 15 minutes of fame. We're at minute like 14.5 at the moment. So.
1: <laughs> well, we're definitely going to tweet and then retweet um, what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, so let's get into this paper that you co-authored. Um, this paper studies the phonological properties of gibbons. You already um, name-dropped this word, gibbons, one word, which you describe as a class of insulting English compounds made up of a monosyllabic obscenity followed by a Troaic innocuous noun. Could you break this down into some plain fucking English, please? Like, what is a gibbon?
0: So first, I just need to point out my co-author, who you mentioned there, uh, Dr. Michael Becker, who I, I said to him, uh, I'm going to go on this podcast and talk about this work. That's all right, right? And he said, yes, everything that goes wrong, you can tell them you blame on me. So that's excellent. So, so a shit gibbon is, is a word that has a specific kind of English coinage. It's, to my knowledge, we don't have uh, specifically this kind of swear word in other languages. So it's two words put together into a compound. And the first word is just one syllable. So, uh, the filthier, the better, I think, but yes. it depends where, however you like. And so you've got that one syllable word. Um, so for example, shit would do very well. And then the second word has to have a couple properties. It has to be two syllables. The first syllable has to be the one that's stressed. So like gibbon works well, where like da stress on the first one, as opposed to, for example, guitar, which is a fairly similar word, but where the second syllable is stressed. So... It has to have these two syllables. The first one has to be stressed, and then semantically, this one isn't a swear word on its own. I mean, "gibbon" is a little weird because it is like calling someone a monkey already sounds a little—you know—it's kind of insulting. But that the best of these, I think, is usually like there's a the second word is somehow you know, kind of a fairly normal-ish word. So maybe an animal or a food or an object. So like fuck trumpet is another really good one. (laughs) And, you know, trumpet inherently isn't a swear. I don't know. Yes. Or or cock waffle is another good one. Right. So (laughs) just enjoyable words. It's just, they're just, they're just stuff. I will actually say that when we were designing the study, we're going to talk about the way that we picked the second words is we just went through uh, a lot of common emojis. So we were looking at like foods and objects and animals. Like that's how we did it. We were like, which of these can we use? Oh, that's cool.
2: For some reason, I thought that some of them were pulled from common use.
0: Yeah. So the, the ones in common use, well, I mean, common, the ones that were in any use that we could find, there's I think like four or five of them. Okay. Uh, yeah. Very few of them. Most of them we just invented. Yeah. So besides being
1: very silly and fun, which from my standpoint is a reason to do anything. Accurate. Why did you want to, you know, embark on this study and spend lots of uh, time going through it?
0: Right. Okay. So here's the thing. Somebody, um, this particular swear word was uh, gibbon was used on the internet and a bunch of people noted that it was pretty fun in 2018, I believe. And me and a few other linguists, uh, including Michael Becker, but not only, had the observation that there's something particularly good about this set of them. And it's particularly good from the linguistics perspective. That is to say, we were like, as linguists, we have an educated guess about why these particular insults sound so good. And so I will tell you in a minute what that was. But basically, our goal was, let's see if we can quantify that and test it. Is our intuition right that these ones sound better than other similar insults for this this phonological reason. So phonological meaning having to do specifically with the sound patterns. Spoiler alert: it worked. Uh, so the the intuition is this. Okay, so we look compare three of these. So we've got cock waffle, shit gibbon, and fuck trumpet. And all three of those words, in addition to having those properties as I said before with the one syllable and then the two syllables with the stress, they also have the following property that the swear word, the vowel in the swear word. And the vowel in the stressed syllable of the other word, so the, the, the first syllable of that other word, they're the same vowel. So in shit-gibbon, they're both i. In fuck, trumpet, they're both uh. And then in cock, waffle, they're both ah. Okay. <laughs> so... That makes them sound good. So we might describe this as a harmony in lots of language systems in the world that are not swearing. They're just minding their own business, building words. There are lots of languages that say vowels nearby each other within a word or something like that have to share some similar properties. They don't necessarily need to be exactly the same like they are here, but they have to share some properties. So we were like, okay, I think that's what's going on, that like this sort of general fact about sound patterns is kind of being like grabbed by the English lexicon and being put to work in this place. We like things that sound the same, but specifically vowels, okay? So if you sort of cross match these words, so like instead of shit gibbon, you think about shit trumpet or shit waffle, and then like cock trumpet, cock gibbon, like these just don't sound as good. (laughs) So what we did is we ran this experiment where we did a couple manipulations, right? We took a bunch of like the swear words and then these second words and we mixed and matched them. And we just asked people, how funny does this word sound? insult sound to you? And also how satisfying. <laughs> we weren't really sure how to get at this question. So those are the two questions we asked. And basically people gave us the same results. Like we got the same for both those questions. You could just conflate the data, it looked the same. And we had people answer on a five point scale. So, you know, uh, between one rate, this word's funniness or this insult's funniness, and it's also its, it's satisfyingness. And so some of them were like shit gibbon, where the vowels matched. And some of them were like uh, shit trumpet, where they didn't. And interestingly, we also picked ones like uh, shit shovel. So cases where the vowels didn't match, but the first consonants did. So both shit and shovel start with sh. Our hypothesis was... Uh, across the world's languages that sh matching isn't really a thing that language systems impose like there are lots of like you know like in poems you have alliteration we have places where like we like the consonants to be the same but no grammatical system requires that shows like the first consonant of adjacent syllables be exactly the same in precisely this way so we had a hypothesis that if this preference for the vowels to match is actually coming from these sort of somehow unconscious, intuitive, built-in, you know, phonological preferences, then the vowels matching should matter and the consonants, those initial consonants matching, shouldn't. And that's what we found.
2: Question. well I just this is I might cut it but yes did you ever consider dick pickle (laughs) did that ever come up
0: we absolutely we absolutely did thank you this is actually maybe kind of scientifically useful so maybe you want to use this we wanted it to be the case that we could really say it was the vowel so if for example like suppose that like shit uh is just a really good first syllable for these right so we might have some sort of Skewed result if we only had one representative item of each vowel. So we needed, we picked our swear words in part, in large part, so that we could try to have at least two vowel examples in the swear words. So we have like shit and piss for i and so on. Um, So English swear words are not particularly well behaved from the perspective of trying to get a wide range of vowels in them. So we were kind of restricted. So we had too many is. So we didn't use dick because we had already had too many is in the set, set. Yeah. We also had to use ass, even though it has no initial consonant because we needed another ah, I came into this, you know, thinking with this question about wanting to figure out why we swear,
1: but you've kind of just answered it because what you're doing is you're saying we use these words because they sound good. And that's why we use them. And that's ultimately why we swear, because it sounds good when we say it. It it makes us feel good. It sounds like saying those words together is pleasing, you know? And I can remember like the first time that I ever swore, and this is a weird thing to say out loud, but I grew up in a very strict Christian home, so not allowed to swear. And I was on my trampoline in my backyard, and there were these bullies that would come over and basically take over my trampoline and say, you know, get out of here, kid. This is our trampoline now. I'm enraged. One day they were about to come over and they're like, hey, get off of our trampoline. And I just looked at them and I said, Fuck off. So, what you're saying is that the U and the O, are like, even though they're different vowels, but they're similar. And that's why fuck off just feels so good to say. And in that moment, I just felt this rush of adrenaline. And I was like, yeah. And then, of course, I cried and my mom grounded me because I confessed to her. I said, I swore. I'm sorry. I'm going to hell.
0: I, I have a lot of things, remarkably large number of things to respond to this story with. One of them is um, that, so you were right that the vowels, uh, and ah, uh, are like, are quite similar And but and so we had the hope, in fact, in our study that similarity would also matter. So because, like I said, lots of the world's languages, they don't necessarily say vowels have to be the same. They just have to say be similar often along a dimension like is your tongue forward or back in your mouth Are your lips rounded or not rounded. So along these dimensions, like that's usually what languages care about the most. So we set up the vowels that we chose uh, alluding details here. in order to be able to ask whether similarity of vowels was good enough. And in fact, it was not. But that could be a, a, a limitation of our study. It was like, similar isn't doesn't matter. It's You got to be the same. Having said that, it's also the truth that those swear words like fuck and shit and dick, all of their consonants are very sort of like extra consonanty. So we have kind of a scale of how consonanty you are. That's not the technical term. Um basically how sonorous you are is a more technical term. And uh the f's and k's and d's and p's, all of those sounds that obstruct the airway considerably when you make them, they seem to be particularly like lend themselves to swear words in English anyway. So we don't have a lot of like like words that begin with M and end in L, do not sound particularly sweary in English, you know, like we don't have a lot of, so, and that is also, I think, well, actually I don't know how English specific that is, but it's certainly an English thing. My suspicion is that it's actually not so much about the sounds is that, that those are the words that are from the like Anglo-Saxon kind of vocabulary. So they just are old and I don't know, old stuff sounds crusty, but this is pure speculation on my part. I don't actually know whether that's true or not.
2: I love the idea that we prefer crusty old, <laughs> crusty old swear words. <laughs> so you were just talking about sort of origins. And one thing that you noted in the paper is that the term shitgibbon is maybe better known in the UK than North America. I hadn't heard about it mm. before well, first chatting with you.
0: Especially Scottish, I believe. Oh. Especially Scottish, I believe is the claim. Yes.
2: To my roots. Yes. It should be in my blood. That's weird that I <laughs> it's weird that I don't know it. So how do these types of terms differ around the world? Do some cultures tend to use different composites? Do you Do you know if it differs?
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I really, I don't. I will say that. I mean, obviously there's, you know, <laughs> there's a large literature um, that actually isn't usually especially in the ling- linguistics sort of field, like it's in sort of adjacent other fields, I would say, that has to do with questions like, you know, why people choose, what certain cultures choose particular forms or kinds of words that they do to swear, right? So this this area I don't know much about. So an, a thing that we also did in the paper was try to see whether there was any evidence just in the non-swearing vocabulary of English that sort of like would support this similarity. Um, And we did find that. So we just tried to look at like compound words in general, and whether they tend to have the vowels be the same in those two adjacent syllables. And the answer was like, yeah, more often than not. I mean, I don't think that it's something that people are consciously aware of normally, but it is something that we've sort of got lurking maybe in in our lexicon. And so you could imagine like that being different across dialects, right? Or languages even, right? That like you use particularly more of a certain combination that that might of, of words that that might kind of get like amplified and you know you might sort of grab onto this one combination and then it you know that becomes a cool way to do something and then it kind of takes off you know
2: that's really cool I also want to know what your favorite version of these <laughs> terms are uh, mine from reading from your paper is one that I learned and uh, will take with me to my grave which is, fuck puffin <laughs> it just sounds both harsh and adorable <laughs> so i really love it
0: do we have to wait to hear michael's before i tell you mine doesn't michael have it a-
2: oh michael do you have one
0: i mean <laughs> i mean fuck trumpet is is
1: uh, it makes me laugh a lot so <laughs> and it and also there's a visual to it that kind of you know as if like blowing something up someone's ass kind of thing and <laughs> um that's funny to me <laughs>
0: Yes. So I, so there's two that strike me. Um, I, I really like ass badger. I think that somehow <laughs> I really like, I like that one. I, the other one I especially like is piss biscuit. <laughs> um, yeah. So I've, and the thing about piss biscuit, and it's actually also true of f- fuck puffin is that, um, so obviously the vowels match, right? Like I've been saying, that's, that's crucial. And they, they, that makes them sound better than for example, if we mismatched, so like uh piss puffin, not as good. I mean, kind of cute, but not as good. And likewise, uh, fuck biscuit. Again, not bad, but not as good. But <laughs> yeah. one thing that uh, strikes me is that they have this va- matching vowel thing, but also the consonants. Okay. They're not all the same consonants, but a lot of them are made with the lips. So fa, pa, and buh are all labial consonants. So, right. You making some hissing noise, but your, your lips are involved. And then P and B are both like where you stop the air entirely. So, I actually think that those consonants also have a certain ring to them somehow. There's a there's like a sound symbolism thing going on there. Um, that isn't something that we found in our study. We didn't mean to look for it, but like when you look for it, it isn't actually in our data. Like pe- that, I don't think those words were overall better, though we weren't necessarily like fully quantifying that. Mm-hmm. But I think that's I think that's sort of lurking in there as well.
2: Would you just think we really had. So much to choose from as kids, and instead we were saying things like "butthead." Like wait, <laughs> that doesn't follow the rules at all. Why weren't Why were we not embracing better linguistics as children?
0: I mean, it's you know, it's learning. It's a it's a lifelong process. You need you need to fully flower <laughs> before you're ready to do this. But that's the cool. So the coolest thing about this, right, from my perspective, is that like nobody teaches you this fact. Like nobody told the dude tweeting. In Scotland in 2018, I mean, like I said, in Scotland, this was actually more of like he didn't coin it in this tweet that we saw. Like I said, it is actually kind of in use. But, you know, like it's clearly adults coming up with these and that the, this impulse to make the vowels match, that urge, whatever it is, you know, it's very unconscious and it's not something anybody teaches you. It's something that you either like you bring to the task of speaking yourself or you've kind of you've figured out in some low key way from Your experience of English compounds or something else like it's it's definitely this you know the thing about linguistics that's so cool is is it's the knowledge that you have that you didn't know you know and this is definitely one of those like I didn't know I knew that languages want their vowels to match in any particular way but apparently it's you know revealing itself here
1: So you had mentioned that we tend to gravitate toward a lot of these old words from old English. Now in science fiction, you know, they try to reinvent, you know, how people speak. And I'm thinking of shows like Battlestar Galactica, you know, that used frack, you know, as their main uh, swear or in the good place, you know, because it was this heaven place, you couldn't swear. So they used really novel ways to replace those swear words. So Do you think that with your study, have you basically sort of laid the groundwork that in the future, they'll also, they may find different words, but they will follow the same pattern?
0: Yeah, it's a good uh, question, which again, I know nothing about, but (laughs) you know, um, the thing that strikes me is, so it's so often the case in linguistics that what happens is you notice one thing. You're like, oh, that's some, that's some like interesting quirk. What's that word about? And then you dig and you go, oh, wait wait, there's a whole system down here. There's like, this is an iceberg. We didn't know that was down there. But what I think that also means is that usually what linguists are, like we're terrible, well, I'm terrible. We're terrible at predicting. Like, I think it's more that, because we just don't know enough. You like see the system you're like, oh, oh, that'll happen. And then you run that direction and you're like, no, this is totally wrong. I mean, the crucial thing is that I, the people who study language change and language contact, are maybe the only linguists who have any good insight (laughs) on how things, you know, develop. There are obviously these, you know, there's uh, fairly well established aspects about historical linguistics, about how things, like how meanings tend to come together and come apart, how sound changes tend to converge and diverge and so on. But having said that, like, I think we know so little about how uh, swearing, so there's this term expressive meaning, which I feel like I would probably be remiss if I don't use here. So the thing about expressive meaning is like, it's the part of meaning that swearing does, but lots of other things do it too, where, you know, it's something additional to the meaning of a sentence, which goes on top, which doesn't change like whether the sentence is true or false. So if you tell someone like close the door and like close the fucking door, they meet like, there's no sense in which, you know, one of them could be it was true that you did it. Like, you can't be like, well, it was true that I closed the door, but it's not true that I closed the fucking door. Like, there's no meaning difference there. That's kind of expressive stuff. That's this other meaning as opposed to like truth conditional meaning. This expressive meaning stuff, I think we know, well, I know I know so little about it that, you know, I I feel like linguists are just going to be like, oh, this is how they swear now. That's great in the future. And then they'll do the same digging that I've done and been like, oh, look what's down here.
1: Well, you know um, you know who else uh, wants to get in on this conversation, Kaylee?
2: The Nerd Herd?
0: Uh, they're actually called the Turd Herd.
2: <laughs> you prepped that? I
1: love that. Why is the sky what's at the center of a black hole? When do we evolve? Does anyone have free will? What is like carbon based? the fastest thing on earth. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. All right. If you want to get in on the Turd Herd questions, we post them on our social media at Night YVR on Twitter and Instagram. Our first one comes in from Britleaf, who asks, is it true that more swearing means more intelligent? Hopefully say yes.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to say yes. I have zero information, <laughs> and I wouldn't really perfectly comfortable putting my expert seal of yes with absolutely no knowledge to back me up whatsoever.
2: Fantastic. My mother will be pleased. (laughs) Uh, We also have a question from Armin. Why are English swear words so sexual?
0: Yes. So this is a a question which, again, I know nothing about. As I told you, it's my side hustle. But we were talking before, I do think, I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? If you try to think through the sorts of things that languages Well, and maybe really we should say cultures, right? Like there are lots of different Englishes and lots of English Englishes use different swear words, right? So sort of more popular swear words in like North America, for example, would be really different, I think, than swear words that are used in Indian English, right? Which is like a robust English of its own. So having said that, uh, English kind of has the two uh, main focuses, right? We have sort of scatological stuff, various stuff that comes out of our bodies, and then we have the sort of sexually associated stuff. And then you can kind of mix mix and match those, right? And then I would say there's other sort of like other kinds of things that languages do, right? Where they pick other religious stuff. So like famously Canadian French has all of these swear words that have to do with the components of the Catholic Mass, right? The host and the chalice are the terms that historic like traditionally were particularly offensive to use as swears. Um, and then there's also sort of Family-associated taboos, right? So I, maybe that might be a subtopic of the the sexual ones about whether or not it involves your mother and so on. Uh, and then there's also kind of animals and you know problematic animals. So sometimes it's cows or camels or monkeys or maybe donkeys. Also pigs maybe are on the table. But I, as for why we've chosen these, I I do not know
1: oh man this is this is the best conversation i love uh what's going on here do you want to out some more with us and michelle
0: uh that seems appropriate yes
1: what about what about All right, if you want to get in on the nerdouts, we post them on our social media. You can let us know what you're nerding out about. And Michelle, what are you nerding out about recently?
0: Okay, so this is a, uh, I have no idea the, the demographic of whether this has come up on the show before. Um, so I'm perennially uh, nerding out on uh, a running app called Zombies Run. Oh, yeah. You familiar with Zombie Run? Yeah. Okay. I am not. I know it. Yeah. Okay. So it's a it's an app that you uh, you listen to. So as you run, you know it has a GPS. Like you use your phone or whatever that's tracking. You know GPS, so you can track that you are moving. So it's set up like you're in the zombie apocalypse. The beginning season starts like somewhat maybe a month or so after there has been a a plague that has occurred, and so um, and you're a runner for like a. A small settlement that is, you know, an encampment. They've like fortified themselves against the zombies, but of course, like they need supplies. So you go out and run, and you get these like audio transmissions as you're running. You can tell it like I'm going to run this distance, and then it says like every sort of sixth of the way along the distance that you run, it like cuts into your headphones. You can play music, and then it'll cut in over top your your music and like give you some information, and there'll be a you know a side project events, And then over time, you get to know the characters, like your operator, the guy who is like sending you on your runs and then various other characters emerge. And it is a very large world. Like there are numbers of characters that come back and then seasons later, someone reappears and there's a whole, so you eventually start getting embroiled in the story of figuring out like how the zombie apocalypse occurred. And then you're involved in like trying to, fix things and get supplies. And it's a very large world. And so now I'm like very invested in the lives of the characters on zombie run and they die, right? Like you lose people. (laughs) So it's like heartbreaking. There's a whole, there's all manner of other things going on. So you can turn on the zombie chases mode. Nope. (laughs) Where then like every once in a while you get chased. And then if you're being chased, you have to run faster to evade them and if you don't and like over the seasons the audio gets better so initially it's just like but then like by season six like it's in stereo they're coming from different directions they like yeah yeah. it's a whole it's a whole thing i love it
2: i have two questions first Can you set a zombie training program? You're like, I want to learn how to run 10K (laughs) from zombies.
0: Yes, absolutely. There are training modes. There's like ones where you can do like speed drills. It's an, it's an happening app. (laughs) You can play it for free and then you can only get one mission a week. But if you like pay, then you can get them all like unlocked.
2: Okay. Second question uh let's say you're like super into running and then you do the classic where you just like stop running for a while <laughs> do you then like log in it's like well everyone's dead now <laughs> like, you you weren't running and now everyone's dead
0: it's your fault <laughs> your <laughs> failure to keep up with your fitness has results in the death of all of your loved ones uh no it knows no time it does not
2: okay great that encourages me to try it i don't want to kill everybody which i might what about you michael you are you like running do you run from zombies
0: uh, I
1: don't run from zombies. Uh, I mostly just listen to metal, as we've talked about before on this podcast. It's almost the same. It, it is It is motivating. It, it, gets, it gets the blood pumping. Uh, but I did run to a movie theater recently to see a movie, Dune. Uh, I honestly have missed the movie watching experience that used to be a big part of my life. Honestly, it was just magical. Uh, epic science fiction, amazing production design. Everyone should go see it in the theater if possible. It's really, really good. But what I want to talk about is another epic science fiction story that has been adapted from a classic novel. It's on Apple TV right now, and it's Asimov's Foundation. Now, I was very skeptical going into this because the source material is so old, and it's like so sweeping and vast and written by a scientist, not really so much an author, Isaac Asimov. And he kind of wrote very one dimensional characters, but a very interesting premise for a story, which is set for in the future where worlds are intergalactic and there is a mathematician who discovers that with enough data points anything in the future could be predicted and uh, in this show's case he can predict the fall of empires and mass shifts in societies uh and it's a show that spans thousands of years which is ridiculous uh and but they somehow are able to do it very cleverly with characters and Uh, after a few world-building episodes, it really hits a stride and they they gender flip characters from like the source material and they make the worlds full of different race groups that was also never part of the original material. And it's way more interesting. Like I remember sort of like kind of skimming the books when I was a kid, but these are way better than the books. And you know, like in Star Wars, you go out in the galaxy and it's all filled with white dudes. You know, that's Mm -hmm. ridiculous. So, you know, foundation and other good science fiction you know, can really imagine futures that have these conversations about race and politics. And this show really does have a lot of like underlying predictions of the future and, you know, global warming. And we can have this conversation and set it in the future. And I think that can be really valuable to kind of distance ourselves from it. Uh, can be really powerful. So, you know, everyone go check out Foundation. I think it's really great.
2: I was going to ask, do they yes. uh, in this one of these future worlds, do they have a Congress of a whole bunch of people deciding on uh, their commitments to mitigate some <laughs> of the harms of climate change like we have in our current world?
1: Well, in, in Foundation, as you'll find out, there's basically the emperor and the emperor figures out that they can rule forever by cloning themselves. And so there's always three versions of the emperor. There's the the dusk, dawn, and I can't remember the other name. So basically an old version, a present version, and a young version of the same person. And then the old person dies off, and then a new one is born, and it just keeps getting recycled for thousands and thousands of years. So this one person, there's this continuity um, that is supposed to hold the empire together. Uh, But, of course, empires are destined to fall and Harry Seldon, the main character, predicts exactly when it is going to.
0: I feel like that's an accurate characterization of current politics. I, that's how that works.
1: <laughs> uh, Kaylee, what are you uh, nerding out about?
2: Well, friends, I went on an adventure. I have lived in Vancouver for almost a decade, and I finally visited Steveston, which is not far from here, Ooh. and I hear is lovely, and it was lovely. Um,
0: Did you go to the bakery? did you get the Romanian bread?
2: No. Oh, wait, the one with like the wood fire oven?
0: Yes, yes, yes. I stood
2: outside and I looked inside through the rain and looked at the $50 batch of the (laughs) thing of bread and was like, no, no. (laughs) Did I want it? Yes, I did. (laughs) I didn't get the bread, but I did visit the cannery. So the cannery is a historic site from 1894 and it was set up by the Gulf of Georgia Cannery Society, which honors the importance of Canada's West Coast fishing history and share stories about, fishing history and fishing communities. And there was a lot to learn about the history of the site. And there were some great plastic fish (laughs) fillets as far as the eye could see, I thoroughly enjoyed that. But what I actually wanna talk about was an exhibit that they had on called the Haunted Sea. Now we went right after Halloween and when we arrived, they said, ah, we've got this exhibit up, it's still up, it's covering some other stuff. Do you wanna see it? And we said, well, yes, obviously. (laughs) So let us see the Haunted Sea. And I was imagining some like scary anglerfish lurking around, haunting whale songs, some glowing jellies. And what was on display was a whole lot scarier than that. The exhibit was essentially a display of the impacts of plastic pollution on the ocean. (laughs) See this cute picture of a whale? Did you know its stomach is filled with plastic, (laughs) including flip-flops? See this net over here? That's an otter that's caught in the net. Oh my god! But the display that caught my eye the most was this room filled with these beautiful iridescent jellyfish. Now I love jellyfish. I have a tattoo of one. I'm very into them, and so I got in this room. I thought, oh, this is beautiful. I took a picture of my friend, and then I saw this sign that says, "Do these plastic bags look like jellyfish? Turtles think so too." (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh Oh. my gosh! So, um, well played, Haunted Sea. Well played. Anyway, the display really stuck with me, and it's not because it's not something I don't already think about. I am definitely somebody who has full-blown climate pollution anxiety, but it's rare that I actually get an opportunity to engage with sort of like an artistic take of it and really spend some time thinking about the impacts that we have on the planet, And so at the end of the exhibit, there was a little board that asked us what we were going to do to help plastic pollution. And uh, both my friend and I put our little magnets under the section that said we were going to tell somebody about the Haunted Sea. And now I've uh, now I have done that.
0: (laughs) Yay. Oh, me and the turtles are wrong in a bad way. I
2: know. It's like, oh, kinship with the turtles. But. Eh, It's not going to end well for us.
1: (laughs) Well, and Michelle, thank you so much for joining us here on Nerdin' About. If people want to go and maybe read this paper about shit gibbons, is there a place that people can go and perhaps learn more about your work
0: uh, as a linguist at the UBC Child Phonology Lab? Um, well, I mean, I think you should check out the UBC Linguistics, uh, our webpage And from there, you can find all manner of different links, both to my own lab website, my own personal website. Uh, it's probably the easiest way to find this work and, and all the other work. But if you look for a Tessier and Becker paper um, from 2019 at this point, I think. I don't actually know what happens when you Google for my name and shit gibbons, but it's probably this paper.
2: <laughs> Definitely don't go to like images, I guess. Well, thank you so much for um, really broadening our uh, language, the terms that we use. <laughs> really appreciate you for that. And uh, and thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more from us, you can follow us on our socials at nerdnight yvr on twitter instagram and facebook this episode was hosted by us surprise uh edited by me and uh, mixed by elise lane we'll be back in a few weeks but until we meet again the next time you swear just embrace the fact that you're uh, doing some linguistic mathematics